Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Chapter 34 of Middlemarch. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Middlemarch by George Eliot. Chapter 34. First Gentleman. Such men as this are feathers, chips, and straws, carry no weight, no force. Second Gentleman. But levity is casual, too, and makes the sum of weight, for power finds its place in lack of power, advances session, and the driven ship may run aground because the helmsman's thought lacked force to balance opposites. It was on a morning of May that Peter Featherstone was buried. In the prosaic neighbourhood of Middlemarch, May was not always warm and sunny, and on this particular morning a chill wind was blowing the blossoms from the surrounding gardens onto the green mounds of Lowick churchyard. Swiftly moving clouds only now and then allowed a gleam to light up any object, whether ugly or beautiful, that happened to stand within its golden shower. In the churchyard the objects were remarkably various, for there was a little country crowd waiting to see the funeral. The news had spread that it was to be a big burying. The old gentleman had left written directions about everything, and meant to have a funeral beyond his betters. This was true, for old Featherstone had not been a harpagon, whose passions had all been devoured by the ever-lean and ever-hungry passion of saving, and who would drive a bargain with his undertaker beforehand. He loved money, but he also loved to spend it in gratifying his peculiar tastes, and perhaps he loved it best of all as a means of making others feel his power more or less uncomfortably. If any one will here contend that there must have been traits of goodness in old Featherstone, I will not presume to deny this, but I must observe that goodness is of a modest nature, easily discouraged, and when much elbowed in early life by unabashed vices, is apt to retire into extreme privacy, so that it is more easily believed in by those who construct a selfish old gentleman theoretically, than by those who form the narrower judgments based on his personal acquaintance. In any case, he had been bent on having a handsome funeral, and on having persons bid to it, who would rather have stayed at home. He had even desired that female relatives should follow him to the grave, and poor sister Martha had taken a difficult journey for this purpose from the chalky flats. She and Jane would have been altogether cheered, in a tearful manner, by this sign that a brother who disliked seeing them while he was living, had been prospectively fond of their presence, when he should have become a testator, if the sign had not been made equivocal by being extended to Mrs. Vincey, whose expense in handsome crape seemed to imply the most presumptuous hopes, aggravated by a bloom of complexion, which told pretty plainly that she was not a blood relation, 
but of that generally objectionable class called wife's kin. We are all of us imaginative in some form or other, for images are the brood of desire, and poor old Featherstone, who laughed much at the way in which others cajoled themselves, did not escape the fellowship of illusion. In writing the programme for his burial, he certainly did not make clear to himself that his pleasure in the little drama, of which it formed a part, was confined to anticipation. In chuckling over the vexations he could inflict by the rigid clutch of his dead hand, he inevitably mingled his consciousness with that livid, stagnant presence, and so far as he was preoccupied with a future life, it was with one of gratification inside his coffin. Thus old Featherstone was imaginative after his fashion. However, the three morning coaches were filled according to the written orders of the deceased. There were pallbearers on horseback, with the richest scarves and hat-bands, and even the under-bearers had trappings of woe which were of a good, well-priced quality. The black procession, when dismounted, looked the larger for the smallness of the churchyard. The heavy human faces and the black draperies shivering in the wind seemed to tell of a world strangely incongruous with the lightly dropping blossoms and the gleams of sunshine on the daisies. The clergyman who met the procession was Mr. Cadwallader, also according to the request of Peter Featherstone, prompted as usual by peculiar reasons. Having a contempt for curates, whom he always called understrappers, he was resolved to be buried by a beneficed clergyman. Mr. Cashiban was out of the question, not merely because he declined duty of this sort, but because Featherstone had an especial dislike to him as the rector of his own parish, who had a lien on the land in the shape of tithe, also as the deliverer of morning sermons, which the old man, being in his pew and not at all sleepy, had been obliged to sit through with an inward snarl. He had an objection to a parson stuck up above his head preaching to him, but his relations with Mr. Cadwallader had been of a different kind. The trout stream which ran through Mr. Cassibon's land took its course through Featherstone's also, so that Mr. Cadwallader was a parson who had had to ask a favour instead of preaching. Moreover, he was one of the high gentry living four miles away from Lowick, and was thus exalted to an equal sky with the sheriff of the county, and other dignities vaguely regarded as necessary to the system of things. There would be a satisfaction in being buried by Mr. Cadwallader, whose very name offered a fine opportunity for pronouncing wrongly, if you liked. This distinction conferred on the rector of Tipton and Freshet was the reason why Mrs. Cadwallader made one of the group that watched old Featherstone's funeral from an upper window of the manor. She was not fond of visiting that house, but she liked, as she said, to see collections of strange animals, such as there would be at this funeral, and she had persuaded Sir James and the young Lady Chetham to drive the rector and herself to Lowick, in order that the visit might be altogether pleasant. "'I will go anywhere with you, Mrs. Cadwallader,' Celia had said, "'but I don't like funerals.' "'Oh, my dear, when you have a clergyman in your family, "'you must accommodate your tastes. "'I did that very early. "'When I married Humphrey, I made up my mind to like sermons, "'and I set out by liking the end very much. "'That soon spread to the middle and the beginning, "'because I couldn't have the end without them. 
"'No, to be sure not,' said the dowager Lady Chetham, with stately emphasis. The upper window, from which the funeral could be well seen, was in the room occupied by Mr. Cashibon when he had been forbidden to work. But he had resumed nearly his habitual style of life now, in spite of warnings and prescriptions, and, after politely welcoming Mrs. Cadwallader, had slipped again into the library to chew a card of erudite mistake about Cush and Mizraim. But for her visitors, Dorothea too might have been shut up in the library, and would not have witnessed this scene of old Featherstone's funeral, which, aloof as it seemed to be from the tenor of her life, always afterwards came back to her at the touch of certain sensitive points in memory, just as the vision of St. Peter's at Rome was inwoven with moods of despondency. Scenes which make vital changes in our neighbour's lot are but the background of our own, yet, like a particular aspect of the fields and trees, they become associated for us with the epochs of our own history, and make a part of that unity which lies in the selection of our keenest consciousness. The dreamlike association of something alien and ill-understood, with the deepest secrets of her experience, seemed to mirror that sense of loneliness which was due to the very ardour of Dorothea's nature. The country gentry of old time lived in a rarefied social air, Dotted apart on their stations up the mountain, they looked down with imperfect discrimination on the belts of thicker life below, and Dorothea was not at ease in the perspective and chilliness of that height. "'I shall not look any more,' said Celia, after the train had entered the church, placing herself behind her husband's elbow, so that she could slyly touch his coat with her cheek. "'I dare say Dodo likes it.' She is fond of melancholy things, and ugly people. "'I'm fond of knowing something about the people I live among,' said Dorothea, who had been watching everything.